Namo dasa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo dasa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo dasa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Hi there, and thanks for listening. If you're enjoying our podcast and have a recommendation about someone you think we should have on to share their voice and journey with the world, by all means, let us know. It could be an aid worker, monastic, author, journalist, scholar, resistance leader, really anyone with some tie or another to the ongoing situation in Myanmar. To offer up a name, go to our website, insightmyanmar.org, and let us know. But for now, just sit back and take a listen to today's episode. Sabe manusa, sabe vini patika, habira huntu, habiapaja huntu. A lack of conscience is all it takes to diagnose yourself with ignorance. Duka muchantu, yatalada sampatito, maviga chantu, kamasaka. This episode of Insight Myanmar podcast, we're talking to Venerable Vimala. This is a nun from Belgium. And thanks so much for taking the time to chat with us for this episode of Insight Myanmar podcast. Very happy to be here. Right. So let's uh, let's get right into one of the recent activities that you did. Uh, after that, I definitely want to take some time learning a bit about your time in robes and your connection to Myanmar. But I think it's just good to get right in directly with one of the topics that is, uh, is a bit sensitive for some people and also a bit important in terms of the, the steps that you've taken. And we're speaking, of course, about the overturned alms bowl movement, which is something that you got got off the ground in, uh, among uh, monastics outside of Myanmar in solidarity. So can you take a moment to explain to us first, what is the significance of an overturned alms bowl and what led you to begin this response to the coup as you did? Well, the significance of the overturned alms bowl is that the alms bowl is um, our way of uh, getting nourishment by going on pindapata, so that's on alms round, and then people put food in the bowl. And if you overturn the alms bowl, you refuse the food from uh, a specific or a group of uh, lay people supporters. And that can only be done if they are not behaving correctly. 
And that's why it's so important to this design is, uh, especially in uh, traditional Buddhist countries, a very um, important sign to say, like, we don't agree with what you're doing. You're breaking the precepts or uh, something that they might have done that is, is just not correct. Um, in relation to uh, the current coup in, in Myanmar, it's, it's a little bit more complex and not all monastics would agree on using that symbol for that purpose. But uh, I think it is important um, and an important um, sign to show that it's not just the monastics within Myanmar, but also in the whole world who simply do not agree with this. Mm, thank you for that. And digging a bit deeper into this symbolic act on the part of monastics and the Sangha, uh, where does this idea come from? Is there historical precedent or is there anything in, in Buddha's life which indicates this act of overturning the alms bowl as a way of rejecting uh, alms and support and thereby merit on the part of the person who uh, wants to give it as kind of a criticism of their bad behavior. Uh, it is mentioned in the Vinaya, um, and yeah, so it's it's something that is already uh, mentioned in the early texts. So it's also like something already two thousand over two thousand years old. So um, that's basically where it comes from. Mm, right. And you mentioned that doing this today is somewhat controversial. Can you share a bit why it's controversial and those people that would push against this act, what where they're coming from and why they have an, a problem with it? It's not so much doing it today as in uh, doing it in these circumstances of, um, in the case of the coup in, in Myanmar, uh, because it is usually something that you do against a specific lay person who, um, that you come across on your alms round. And somebody who would, might want to put something in your bowl and you refuse it. Of course, in this case, you can't do that because we're not on Pindapata in Myanmar and getting alms from um, the, the lay people there or from the, the military and soldiers there. And because that is no longer, wasn't possible actually for many of the monastics in Myanmar to do so, because of the repercussions they might be facing by doing that, um, us doing it as a symbolic act on their behalf was trying to send this signal to the military regime that we do not agree with this. Mm, right. And you referenced that it was seen as controversial by some people. What, what was their reason or grounding for why they would have an issue with it? Uh, because it's, it's not part of, um, yeah, exactly as it is in the Vinaya against one person or several per people mm -hmm. who actually are trying to put something in your album's bowl and uh, you're refusing it. So it, it's, it was a far more symbolic act and right. that is not actually mentioned in the vineyard as such. 
Right, I see. And the Vinaya, of course, is the monastic standards of the regulations and rules the Buddha laid down for how monastics are to act. And so you're saying that in referencing the Vinaya set down by the Buddha 2,500 years ago, there are examples and guidelines of avoiding um, uh, of of not accepting food from a particular individual donor that one can be referred to, and that would be might be legitimate still today. But taking that example and extrapolating to make it a symbolic gesture that's a sign of solidarity on one hand with the democracy movement and uh, those monks that are facing hard times, and on the other hand a condemnation of the wider Burmese military that making this kind of uh, conceptual leap is something that those more strict traditionalists have some kind of problem with. Is that is that fair to say? Exactly, yes. Mm, right. And so... Uh, so we understand now, and we're trying, I should mention, we're trying to stretch this out and really explain this uh, step by step for those listeners that are completely unfamiliar with Buddhist traditions and especially monastic traditions. Uh, to, it could take some time to wrap your mind around why the subtleties of these rules are so important and, and um, something so small can, uh, can bring about a, 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 such a contentious discussion. So wanting to make sure that understanding is there for everyone. So from their side, I hope we understand now why uh, some people would find this problematic or controversial, make, making this conceptual leap. Now, explaining from your side, in what ways do you see this first as being justified and allowable, and then second as significant and important? I feel that it's justified in this case, as the monastics in uh, Myanmar were not, no longer able to do this because they might face penalties if they did. Uh, and therefore, we feel it's felt it's justified to um, show this as, as a symbol of solidarity and to show you're not alone. There is mm. other monastics in the whole world that uh, are behind you, even though you might not have much contact with them. They are there. Right, right. Yeah, that's 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 really beautiful. Have you received a response from people in Myanmar who have seen what you've been doing and how you've been sharing? Have they have they been able to uh, to to see the results of your work? Uh, yes. Also, the Democratic Voice of Burma has broadcast uh, this uh, this movement and a lot of the images that we or a lot of the pictures that we uh, we collected. And also, I understand that it's been broadcast into Myanmar, and I've also had a lot of uh, response. Not quite often, not directly, but via various other channels of people that really uh, appreciated what we were doing. Mm, right, right. That's that's great. On the other hand, you mentioned that it has been a controversy among some sectors. Have ha, what shape has this controversy taken? Has it been just people kind of grumbling or having private conversations, or has it spilled out into something of more of a public debate or discourse about the appropriacy of this? I have not seen any public debate about it, so it's more like letters we received personally. Mm. Mm-hmm. Right. So let's take a minute just to understand how this movement actually took off. Now we have a theoretical grounding for what you did, why you did it, where it derived from, and some of the response, both positive and negative. Let's learn a bit about the movement itself. So describe your, as someone who really got this off the ground, 
uh, take a moment to describe your initial reaction to what was happening in Myanmar, your feeling as a monastic, and then uh, starting to lay the, the ideological groundwork for what something like this movement would be, and then what happened as you started to take it off the ground and get other people involved? Well, when, I, when the coup happened, I was in retreat. Uh, so I didn't actually learn about it until um, somewhere half April. And so I was quite shocked because um, I had hoped that uh, things would improve in Myanmar, even though it might have been a long road. But now it, is, it seems to have like taken like 10 years back in time again. And... I wanted to do something and I was very inspired by a picture that was going around and I think it was in a local paper here, I can't quite recall anymore, of um, some monks in Myanmar sitting on the steps of their monastery uh, making the V sign with a tape over their mouth and the first one, which I take to be the abbot, uh, was holding his alms bowl upside down. And I find that a very, very powerful uh, symbol and I wanted to do something, but I wasn't quite sure how to, to do that. So I participated in a Meta for Myanmar session uh, that was led by Isayale, who uh, from Myanmar. Uh, this was online, directly broadcast from Myanmar. And there I also met... Uh, a Burmese lay woman uh, who lived, lives in Europe. And I contacted her and asked her for help. And I also contacted my friend Ayayashi. And this lay woman uh, in Europe, she was also involved in uh, another another group that was helping to raise funds to get uh, help to, to the people in the uh, non-violence movement in Myanmar. So that's why I thought she might be a good person to help me with setting this up. I have no clue about things like Facebook, so I felt that that might be necessary to have something like that. So that's also what I, uh, what I asked of her. And I contacted my friend Ayayashi, who is a uh, bhikshuni in the Tibetan tradition, uh, who's also an activist and who runs a charity in, uh, in uh, India, and who is also a, a close friend of, of Bikabodi. And so together we actually started off writing a little uh, letter on, on that we were going to send to all our monastic friends or anybody who had a, we had an email address of uh, and post on Facebook and various other channels. And that also included this picture, this iconic picture of the monks in, in Myanmar. So that's, that's basically how we started. Mm, right, and you're referring to the picture of the monks at um, Myangtown Monastery in Mandalay, a famous picture of their response and in the initial uh, weeks following the coup and the, where there was still more hope and optimism of putting tape on their, their mouths to show their inability to express themselves freely. And there's since been reports, I'm not sure how confirmed they are, but reports that many of those monks in the picture have unfortunately disappeared and perhaps um, the military took their vengeance on them. 
but this was the inspiration of wanting to show some kind of solidarity, some kind of support from monastics, from Buddhist monastics in different parts of the world. And so this led to the idea of doing these, doing this symbolic act of showing the alms bowl upside down, inferring that, uh, that they did not accept, that one would not symbolically accept alms as a monastic from members of the military that were engaged in this very, very unskillful action, to, to say the least. So as you got this off the ground, what happened? What, how did you start this, what really became a movement, and how did other people come to be involved in it? Well, we started, like I said, with just an email to all our monastic friends. And um, we had set up a, a special email address for it as well. And the first picture that came in was from Banta Analio. At first, I was really afraid that nobody would want to help. Uh, but when this picture from Banta Analio came in, who is uh, somebody I very much respect, uh, one of the greatest monastic scholars that we have in the world, uh, I felt reassured and then very shortly afterwards Bikabodi joined in and also other uh, members of the monastic community where he's staying um, and a lot of bhikkhus and bhikkhunis um, all over the world sent in pictures and so that was very lovely to see their support um, a lot of people from different traditions as well Tibetan traditions mm. And traditions, mm -hmm. not just Theravada, um, who all wanted to support this. And one thing that happened uh, also with this picture of the monks, um, as you mentioned, that a lot of them or most of them have disappeared. So something happened also to our Facebook account with that picture. That picture was uh, on the heading of our friends or our group, I don't quite know how these things work, So, but it was at the heading of our uh, group and uh, the admin of this group had her Facebook uh, banned at some point. The pictures were removed everywhere and without explanation. And after a while, the admin, she could get her Facebook account back. Uh, I think she probably talked to some people with uh, in Facebook who also understood that she was not uh, posting harmful content. Um, but yeah, so there was something going on around this picture. And what we did then is this post this picture everywhere again, uh, just to say, it's like, please keep this picture at somewhere uh, at home or uh, anywhere. Just post this as many times as you mm -hmm. can, just so that these monks are not forgotten. So that is another thing that happened during this movement. And where can one find the photos that you've collected of all these monastics around the world who are turning their alms bowl upside down in solidarity with the democracy movement and uh, monastics in Myanmar? You can find it on our Facebook group called Sangha for Myanmar. And I think the Facebook link will be posted uh, below this so this was really an example of uh, bringing the practice and uh, your background as a monastic into very pressing social issues that are occurring in the world. Uh, of course, there are different views of to what degree practitioners as well as monastics should be engaged in the world, where they should be pulling back, it's something we've talked about in interviews here. For you personally, uh, if one can say this is a part of engaged Buddhism, um, have you done social actions like this before as a monastic? 
not so much in this extent, but um, I have uh, helped a organization called um, Compassionate Hands in Myanmar before. Mm. Um, that was before I was a monastic, actually. Um, and I'm also sometimes helping a bigger bodies organization in Germany called Mia Mitgefühl in Aktion. Uh, as well as uh, my friend Ayayashi and her charity in in uh, India. Mm, right. Yeah. And digging a bit deeper into that, looking at Myanmar specifically, can you tell us a bit about your relationship with the country? This could include your time actually spent visiting the country or meditating or practicing there. Also, your experience um, with Burmese traditions that could be outside of the country, just whatever interaction you've had either with Myanmar, with Burmese people on your path or with the uh, with different spiritual traditions and, and teachers from a Burmese lineage. I started meditation. Um, my, well, the first official meditations I did with uh, the Gwenka tradition, and speci- specifically mm-hmm. here in Belgium. Mm. And um, so I have a big debt of gratitude towards this tradition, who mm. makes things available, makes meditation available for everybody uh, free of charge, just on a basis of donation. And I think that was such a beautiful gift to give to the world. Uh, Mm -hmm. But at some point I wanted also to see this country and also to become a monastic. So in 2008, January 2008, I went to Myanmar and I became a CLA in a monastery called Te Pute, uh, which is north of Yangon. And so I ordained there as a CLA for about a month, but this was a very difficult time because this was still uh, before Aung San Suu Kyi came to power. And there had just been the monks uprising in September of the year before. Uh, so they were not very keen on people coming to uh, ordain as monastics from outside, from Western countries, because you might be spies or journalists or something. Mm-hmm. And so it was a very tense time. And I'll tell you some of the stories that happened there. Um, I was ordained. Uh, you, at that time, it was fairly simple. You would come to the monastery, you'd ask for ordination, and you'd be ordained at the same day. And that evening, the Sayadol there, he um, asked me to come forward and sit next to him. And on the other side was a monk. And that monk spoke English and he was to translate for me. And the the talk he gave me or the discourse he gave me for my practice uh, was very typical. And it's it's one of the suttas in the Samyutta Nikaya, uh, which basically says like, well, if you want to go into... um, if you want to go into uh, samadhi, into deeper concentration, deeper meditation, you should not talk about the government, not talk about the generals. Mm. And so it went on and on for a little bit like that. So uh-huh. I said, well, this is a bit peculiar. <laughs> but uh-huh. um, what I also understood is that there might be spies in uh, among the people listening and wanting to know what this Sayadol who is... Uh, having all these Western monastics coming, what he is teaching them and what they are talking about. So uh, 
Yeah, so it was very much alive at that time. Also, there was a mm. lot of fear. Um, so it was a bit of a strange, strange time. Although I didn't really get all of that as a, because I didn't speak the language. But uh, especially also things I've heard from friends later on is that it was just very tense, tense time. Um, so after a month, months, I had to leave because I couldn't get a uh, an extension on my visa. And I tried again the next year in 2009, uh, saying again the same thing. Uh, I couldn't get a a long-term visa and I had to leave. And in 2010, I I thought, oh, now I'm really going to go and I'm going to try and get a meditation visa and I'll stay for longer, I'll stay for a year. And I also had collected some money for uh, Compassionate Hands in Myanmar. Uh, I'm not actually sure if the if it still exists, Compassionate Hands, but we had collected money in cash to bring across the border. Hmm. That's the reason being that otherwise, like a lot of the money would go to the government, which we didn't want. We wanted it to go to the people that really needed it. And... Um, yeah, five days before my flight, my doctor said, no, you can't go because you most likely have cancer. Mm. So, um, yeah, then there was a whole rush of like, oh, what to do with all this money? <laughs> and luckily mm-hmm. I had had a friend uh, who wanted to become a monk and who was already going there. We were going to go together. And so I managed to get the money all to him and he took it over the border and he took it to the people behind Compassionate Hands. And, um, yeah, I stayed at home. I meditated for two months, then had an operation. And, um, yet it turned out to be not cancer, but mm. operation anyway. And, um, the, the nuns in a small monastery in the south of Germany, Anandja Vihara, uh, invited me to come and recuperate there. So I did that. And that's, yeah, my life took a very different turn. I've never been back to Burma after that because I asked for ordination in that monastery and that's where I stayed and where I became Anagarika. Mm, I see. Thank you. That's that's a, that's a really beautiful story of your background. And going to the start of your story, you know, you talk about, it, it's quite a stunning scene actually coming there for a spiritual um, renunciation and in the initial talk giving to you after your ordination, it's a reminder not to talk about politics. And this is actually a very clever way that it's being discussed because of course the Buddha was very clear that there is needless chatter and there is there are things about the world and talking about the happenings of the world, whatever they might be that are just not exactly skillful or conducive to waking up and to uh, gaining higher spiritual states and one has to let go of certain kinds of topics of conversation that are just not skillful anymore. But this uh, instruction from the from the Buddha is being applied here in this case in a very specific way. So it's not just talking about needless talk in general, but it's very specifically saying not to be concerned and engaged about certain things that are happening in the country. And politics, of course, is code word for a lot of things. When politics is a is, is a clever word to use because by saying politics, it can mean like, oh, you know, this political leader and this one and these kind of these kind of mechanisms of how uh, of 
kind of this messy political discourse that's going on. And okay, I don't, I don't need to be involved in that. But when you're talking politics in Myanmar, you're, it's actually code word for talking about human rights and talking about uh, the harm being done to vulnerable communities and talking about some of the ethnic minorities and their status. Saying that one is not going to talk about politics is really an implicit kind of nod or understanding that one will not talk about human rights, at least in, that's how I've come to understand it living in Myanmar. So as you take yourself back to this time, you know, I think when you were going through that ceremony, there were so many things that must have been going on in your mind, the forces that brought you to Myanmar, the dedication to the teacher, the desire to want to be a good yogi and a good monastic and not impose on this monastery that was taking you in and that obviously would have its own risks at play, but also coming from the West, holding progressive values. Uh, there's, I imagine that moment must have brought about a certain tension and, and uncertainty in how exactly you respond and engage from being put in that place. Uh, or at least that's my thought. I'm wondering, as, as you think back now on that moment, what, what comes to mind and how do you see those different forces at play in the moment? Yes, it was quite a strange um thing actually and you also start to wonder is like well what is actually this buddhism um mm. this is a buddhist country and buddha had all these lovely values of compassion and kindness and how can this happen in a buddhist country and at some point after the last day then in 2008, when the day before I had to leave, I went for a walk around um, together with a friend and um, we got lost. And we met some people, we didn't speak the language. All we had was a, um, a key hanger, which had the name of the monastery in Burmese mm. script on it mm. to show people where we were from. And these people were incredibly uh, poor. They lived in, in small bamboo huts, but they invited us to come and have tea with them. They would give us bananas and all kinds of things. And eventually they also found somebody who could, could bring us back to the monastery. And um, yes, we, uh, so finally we got back to the monastery and this, this man that had brought us, my friend wanted to give him some money and he was very upset. I mean, this was a very poor man, but he was like, no, he could not accept this money from this rich Western person for bringing them back. And, and I thought like, gosh, these people, they are so poor and they still just want to do things because it's the right thing to do mm. and not for money. And that was just such an eye-opener also for me. Uh, and I think maybe that has also something to do with why this could happen why a military regime like this could take hold of such a country because like people don't protest too much actually they, mm -hmm. they're very 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 kind and and loving and yeah they, they don't want to do something that might hurt another person and it's it, it it, it sounds a bit strange maybe because I think the Buddha never taught pacifism, mm. but I think that is what is happening. Uh, I might be wrong, but that's sort of what the idea that I got. 
And I think it's also made a confusing situation over the years for foreign practitioners and meditators and monastics in just knowing exactly how to engage. I mean, I think about my own introduction to Myanmar when I went the first time in 2003 and was also a Goenka meditator. And coming from that tradition, I was hearing consistently from the teachers in that tradition, as well as Goenka himself and, and seeing uh, uh, and, and hearing speeches that he had said previously that had been recording or reading writings that was a consistent injunction, not advice, but injunction, a demand really that one does not get involved in politics. And again, politics is kind of the code word for human rights for speaking about or being concerned about the wider damage that the military rule was causing. And being a young and impressionable Westerner at the time, I took it as, uh, I, I, I was hearing that advice more than I was actually learning and engaging about the realities of the country at the time. And so I took that really to heart and really, and I, I know a lot of meditators from that tradition as well came in with that mindset of being really clear that like, I, I am not taking that advice as, as really like a, a guidance to being closed off to wanting to hear that reality. And really trying to separate artificially like no I'm I'm not going to look at these things I'm not going to talk about them I'm not I'm not even going to be concerned about them because my reason for coming here is one of practice and that that is a separation that I had been instructed to make and so I was striving to make it and um you know I think and I say that uh, as I as I say that now, you know, I do. I think it does come across somewhat critically because since I've been engaged in the country more, I, I've really seen the damage and and the harm of trying to separate those two things out and and really trying to be disengaged and almost uncaring or detached from the the pain and reality that this military rule was causing. At the same time, it's a it, it's really a. Um, a sensitive and delicate thing to understand properly because you also have to look at the only way that these monasteries and meditation centers were operating were to stay clear this way. And they, this is a very evil entrenched organization that has been in power for some time. And many of these centers and monasteries were faced with the decision to either engage or speak out in which they would have no presence whatsoever and uh, couldn't have any kind of impact or they would have to make somewhat of a deal with the devil and they'd be able to operate their Dhamma courses, their meditation courses, but they'd have to make this kind of false distinction and encourage this kind of false distinction in their students to really separate the human rights abuses and the harm that was being perpetuated in the country with just purely this spiritual practice and that uh, and 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 that was the choice they had. And I know for Goenka, he had a hope that by more people practicing his tradition and his teachings, that this might somehow start to change more hearts in the country and would encourage a way of of sending meta to those generals and wishing that they they not, harm others and that they come out of whatever suffering. So they also bring those they harm out of suffering. So it was a more indirect kind of way uh, to go about it. It wasn't a complete ignoring it. It was just a, a methodology of let's try to change one heart 
individual by individual and hope that was going to create a wave or a cascade. And that would be, I think, uh, in, in, in my um, understanding, at least, that would be a kind of um, indirect path towards creating a greater cha- change for good in the country rather than speaking about some of these abuses or taking action directly. Uh, which um, which would have immediate ramifications, um, such as the action you took of overturning an alms bowl uh, back in the day. That that would have been uh, unthinkable and would have would have had you on the blacklist for good. And so, these I, I'm just going into length uh, fleshing out this argument just to show how delicate it, it is um, that it was that it continues to be in how one looks at being able to engage in the spiritual practice and welcome these teachings without imposing um, this um, this wider societal and worldly view, which even the Buddha was, was cautioning against, while at the same time being someone who cared about the welfare of others, was not selfishly just on a spiritual pr- path and ignoring the plight and the suffering of those around in that worldly reality, and where these come together. And it's it's really, it could be really tough to figure out and to do so in, in a skillful way uh, with all these different conditions. So I wonder what your thoughts are in hearing that. As someone who had to tangle with this directly and interact with it, what what are what are your thoughts on, on, on how to do this? Yes, I completely agree with that as uh, things that I've, you've been in, in Myanmar far longer than I have. So, uh, because I uh, am also blacklisted, so to say, uh, for another reason, namely that I'm a Bikuni. And Bikunis don't uh, are not don't exist according to the Myanmar Sangha, which is uh, quite ironic that me doing uh, this Almsbow movement and also many Bikunis from around the world joining in and showing their support uh, is also a way of showing it's like well we are going to put aside our um, whatever uh, there is between us and just support you because we feel it's the right thing to do uh, rather than to go about like, oh, well, you don't accept us as bikunis and therefore we're not going to care about you. Uh, so um, but while you were talking, I thought of another incident that happened while I was in, in Myanmar. And that was um, a woman who came to give alms uh, at a monastery and she wanted specifically to give alms to the Western nuns. And um, I, yeah, I was fairly new there, so I, I didn't know the ins and outs, but I was told uh, by a friend who was also a nun there that she was actually the wife of a military person and she had been refused to give um, alms at the time to the monks. So she wanted to at least get some merit by giving it to the Western nuns. And we did accept it, actually. Um, also, because it was very clear that she was suffering uh, and that she so much wanted to make some good merit. And and also that the whole thing isn't so black and white. A lot of soldiers didn't, didn't have much of a choice. They needed to have some job to uh, make ends meet. And so it wasn't always so black and white, this whole thing. And of course, it never is. But... So, yeah, I, I can understand also Gwenkaji's point of view is to try and bring the Dhamma 
into to Myanmar more and more sent me, uh, compassion etc I understood that uh, Gwenkachi also managed at some point to get his meditation teachers uh, into insane prison to teach meditation to the prisoners mm. that is a very big step mm-hmm. uh, and that is something quite extraordinary uh, also in in Tepute, where I was, uh, the second year I went back in 2009, and you probably will know about this, they were building a uh, stupa, and the stupa was being built by uh, prisoners. Yep, right, I yeah, 50 prisoners in blue, I remember that. Exactly, and uh, some of the Westerners that came there, they couldn't understand that it was like why, why is this side is like employing these prisoners and right. them do work and how can you do that but i understood that more as a, as an act of compassion right the side also well otherwise they they're gonna send them to work on some road somewhere in the middle of nowhere uh in in the heat and uh with with hardly any food and here they are getting shelter they're getting good meals they're getting food and they're doing something that makes merit and for them, that's important. So I could saw it more as an act of compassion for those prisoners, and also a way of, yeah, also in, in a way helping to bring the Dhamma into the government in that way. Right, and I, I remember that I was there for a, I did a self course while those prisoners were doing work and it was it was a very conflicting kind of thing because everything you say is correct that they were better off at that monastery that Sayada had 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 some special kind of relationship with someone in I don't know someone in some part of government maybe in the prison sector but it, I think had come and and taken a course and was really impressed with him and so wanted to offer this and in one sense it was uh, it, it was kind of good all the way around the monastery got to have uh, worked on an improvement and the prisoners were able to do something, at least for those that were Buddhist and, and supported that were able to, and maybe they, maybe prisoners who came got to, it was voluntary. They got to choose if they wanted to go there or someone else, somewhere else. And they were probably taken care of better there. And so all these things are kind of for the favor, but at the same time, it was just kind of awkward being in a monastery where there was basically a chain gain. I mean, it was basically, um, they were wearing semi-prison uniforms and they were working all day long and to be sitting here in silence taking this course and seeing these prisoners that were the ones contributing to the beautifying and the construction of the monastery it, it was that it was one of those those things again which just left you feeling a bit conflicted and understanding certainly understanding their side of how this is probably the best option for them of all the options they have in front of them and yet also just feeling like well this is this is still just kind of odd that somehow the say it got you know free labor from or semi-free labor from from 50 prisoners to just come and build this monastery that then i'm enjoying but i think this also speaks to just the overall complexity that is myanmar and that is burmese buddhism within myanmar yeah absolutely and it's just such a complex situation that i find it at least for me to yeah, to make a, a judgment on how these things, I find very, very complex. Although uh, when it comes to like the military killing people, maiming people, torturing people, then of course that is very clear, that part. But the whole political thing about, mm. yeah, what is right and, and, and wrong, that's sometimes a little bit blurred. Yeah. 
Yeah, it really is. Uh, if we could just take a step back and look at who Sayada was, Thebu Toya Sayada, the one that you ordained with. Uh, I uh, I went to the monastery many times as well. Then he was kind of like a a rising star that came from nowhere and just shot into supernova overnight. I mean, he went from being a name that no one had heard of and just even there was a select group of foreign practitioners that had heard through him one way or the other and started flocking there. And then he got attracted more attention within Burmese society and is now quite well known there. He was a previously a a teacher, even as a monk, in the Goenka system, which was quite unusual at that time to have a, a monk assistant teacher. And he then stepped down to uh, to to start his own tradition that was, and and for a time it had a lot of enthusiasm among Goenka meditators. It was known kind of as a Goenka monastery, as a which was not quite accurate, but um, it was known as a place where practitioners from the Goenka lay community could come and ordain and basically practice something that was more similar than the to the Goenka technique than most of the other monastic traditions out there. So it got this kind of moniker as a uh, as a, a Goenka monastery where, where, where one can come and ordain and still more or less stay in the tradition. But it was a bit more complicated than that. But in any sense, um, can you share a bit about where you heard of W. Sayada and what made you want to make such a dr- dramatic and drastic decision to renounce and ordain under the Sayada and then what your experience was learning under him and in, in that kind of practice environment? Well, it's exactly as you uh, you mentioned. I was a Gwenka practitioner. I had heard about Sayadol, um when that was still in the very beginning days, I think. Um, I was, uh, I think, the third a Western person who came there to ordain, even though I only stayed for um, for for one month at that time, and there were uh, two nuns who had had been there for a year at that time when I came. And yeah, it was exactly how you how you described this. Is I uh, uh, I had asked also my teachers within the Guenka tradition here in Europe, and uh, if. I could go there and they said, yes, that would be allowed and I would still be uh, able to uh, serve and sit long courses in the Gwenka tradition afterwards. And I think this needs a little bit of explanation for the people that don't know the Gwenka tradition. Um, So, yeah, in the Gwenka tradition, if you meditate in that tradition and you want to sit uh, longer courses than the 10-day course, like 20-day or uh, Satipatthana course they have as well, uh, or 30 or longer, day, uh, then you should commit to that tradition solely and not practice any other techniques. And um, there are no actually, actually no monasteries or so where this is practiced, but uh, as Sayadol had been a, a teacher in this tradition and had just started off, it was okay for me to go there and still keep that continuity of my Granka technique practice going. Uh, and therefore I could come back to Europe and then also sit longer courses afterwards. So that's the, the one big reason why I wanted to go there. And the other reason was that I had heard that there were some um, nuns there, some Western nuns, whom I had also known as lay people uh, in Dhammadipa in England. So um, that's why I also wanted to go there too, because they were there. 
Mm, right. Yeah, I, I know the nuns who you're referring to. They were also big influences on my life. And uh, Venerable Kanda has been uh, a guest on this podcast as well. So, uh, so that's what brings you there. Something similar for both of us in terms of how it got on the radar and how we we started to uh, to gravitate towards there. What was then your experience of spending extended time both at the monastery, which was a, a very very powerful place for for me and for others I know who came, as well as under the instruction and the guidance of Tabutoya Seda? Uh, it was a very lovely experience. Um, I, I told you already about the, the little talk I had uh, in the beginning and when I ordained, but after that, there, there was a lot of care, a lot of compassion from Sayadaw to teach me and to teach me also in English. So there was a lot of time that he spent uh, with the monk who could translate to help me along on the path. And I very much appreciate that. And I have a lot of gratitude for him, uh, to him for that. Uh, my name, Vimala, was also the name that he gave me. And so that's why I'm still carrying that. Mm, right. What stands out from that experience of uh, you, you've had uh, now up to this point in your life, you've had so many Buddhist and meditative and monastic experiences. And I'm sure they're all, um, the, as you think back and remember the different stages, there's different things that stands out as being distinct and uh, giving you something here or there that helped you along the path and, and that was different from the others. So as you think about that monastery in Sayada, what really stands out with that? Hmm, <laughs> that's a good question. Um, I think it is also the first time I was in a monastery and I met a, a monk and could converse with a monk, even though through a, medita uh, through a translator. And yeah, just being there and sitting there and feeling this compassion that it was something very new to me is this this care and compassion that he gave me at that time. Um, yeah, for me that was something very special. I've never experienced that before because that it was so very different from all the Gwenka courses I'd done before. Um, so that, that really stands out for me is that I can still visualize this image of. Uh, me sitting there uh, by his side and the, uh, the translator monk on the other side. Uh, mm. Yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. Right. And how about Myanmar in general? Just you're especially coming from uh, from the Goenka tradition where one hears, in that tradition, one just hears so much about Myanmar being the origin of the teachings of this lineage and this kind of spiritual homeland and everything else. And so coming and experiencing Myanmar, the country, the Burmese people, the different traditions, what, what was that like for you? The one thing that really struck me was the kindness of the people. Uh, one time I went on Pindapata, an alms round with the monks. Uh, and as a nun, I was not allowed to carry a bowl, but I could walk behind the monks. And they would go to a nearby village and there's about five kilometers walk, I think, on bare feet over the gravel. <laughs> and uh, the village was very, very poor and people all came out and they were so happy also to see me 
even though I wasn't really mm. going on Elm's route. And the ones that could speak a little bit English would say something. And uh, I find it just such a beautiful experience. It's like the women would pick up their children, their little babies, to also guide them to give a little spoon of rice in the bowls to also make marriage. And there was just so much joy in, in that whole process. So, and... Yeah, like my story before, when I got lost, people were just so incredibly kind. And yeah, before I came to Tepute, I took a little um, sightseeing tour, um, also to the Gwenka Center, of course, in Yangon, to mm. um, the, the also to the farm of Sayatechi uh, across the river. And mm. we stayed overnight at that farm. And there was a lady in the village. The farm was abandoned, uh, but they gave us the, the, the key and we could stay there. And there was a lady in the village that cooked for us every night and we were complete strangers. And mm. uh, it was just so lovely and so much kindness and care. Uh, that's just so unknown almost in, mm. in the West. Mm. Uh, that, mm. Yeah, it, it really, really touched me. And I think these stories are so important because especially now, as you hear about the problems Myanmar is going through uh, as a society and politically and how and, and how much the economy has collapsed, so much of what is told about Myanmar in, in the media is about it being a failed state or needing all kinds of support, just really needing so much. And I think this gives, this then starts to give a kind of view or stigma to the country that it's just a place always in need. And when we hear these stories, the stories that you're telling, and so many, not just hundreds, but thousands of other foreign practitioners have shared in, in coming and being taken care of in this way, you it, it starts to reframe the country in a more dynamic and multidimensional way that it's also a giver. It's also a provider. It's also a teacher. It's also a place with extraordinary generosity. And I think it's so important to know those stories and acknowledge them and bring them out that can balance that competing narrative that it's just a broken place that's always in need of more help because this this is true in some way, but yet it's also true that it's this extraordinary giver and welcoming people to come from all backgrounds and just uh, just showering them with support and generosity as you describe in some of these anecdotes. Yeah, and I think that's really where the Buddhist teachings have taken hold in that country it's like this lived experience of this incredible compassion generosity etc uh, and, and maybe that's just not all groups i mean the, the the military they seem to be some kind of outside group that are ruling out trying to impose their power on the the other people but I, I, I could be completely wrong about that, but that's how it feels to me almost. Um, I, I also remember when the cyclone Narches struck and the reports that would come out of, of Myanmar is that people would just go to the, to take any car they could find, uh, mm. load it up in the supermarket and go into that area to to help the other people to feed them. And mm. nobody was like waiting to say like, well, the government should do something. Uh, everybody was just immediately 
in action is like, oh, there's people there that need help and we're going to help them. We're not going to wait for all kinds of official organizations to do so. We are going to help them. Uh, so, yeah, all, all these things, they speak so much for for the spirit in, of Myanmar. And, yeah, that's what I found also so important in the, the, the help I could give to this organization I, I mentioned earlier, Compassionate Hands, mm. um, to be able to yeah go to villages and make a well uh, for mm. the village, make a school for the children, bring school materials so they could learn, etc., etc., there is this, this so much goodwill to help each other uh, when you're in need. And this togetherness that you, yeah, you don't find so much anymore in our Western world. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's that's very true. And as you talk about having to navigate through these different parts of Burmese society, I'm also wondering if there was, you mentioned, you, you uh, frame at the beginning of your renunciate journey, uh, how you were given this injunction on your ordination that you were not to talk about politics or government or, you know, aka human rights with your as your time as a monastic which is really for your safety as well as the safety of the monastery uh as you proceeded through your life in myanmar and through your your practice or travels or interactions with burmese people uh did did this kind of intersection or conflict come again did you have other encounters that showed this kind of uncomfortable dynamic between the 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 messy world and the uh, the corrupt, unstable society that was housing this beautiful tradition that you were also part of, and did that come into conflict at, at another point? Well, I didn't stay in Myanmar very long. I've basically only been there for uh, literally two months, slightly more, because mm. of visa issues. And when I wanted to go back, I couldn't. So, um, and then my life took a different turn. So, I haven't been there for very long, but I haven't been uh, in contact also with people within Myanmar, uh, as well as uh, some of the Sayolais, uh, who, like some of them, have now come back to Europe to set up centers here and um, yeah it just seemed to be like the, the conflict seemed to be like around every corner in that time that I was mm -hmm. there it's like it could be around you could make a, a, a remark uh, very well well meant or whatever and it could trigger a response of like oh don't talk about that kind of thing and um, it, it really brought it home. It's like there's like people couldn't talk, and they also didn't want to talk to you if you talked about anything that was uncomfortable in that sense because it could mm -hmm. uh, negatively impact on them. Um, one, one time I was uh, with my friend, I was uh, sitting having a, a, a coffee or tea uh, near the Swedagon, and uh, a man joined us and he was telling he was. Um, he used to work in Singapore and so he was a little bit more westernized I had the impression a young man and then while we were talking there was an, an, an Austrian looking older man come to stand behind him and then behind us another one and you're like 
oh my God, we, we have to get out of here. And especially when these young men started a little bit talking about politics, then we saw like, okay, we have to cut this off and we, for mm. his safety as well as our own, but more for his safety and we have to go. So we did and we made an excuse and we left. But it, it seemed to be like everywhere almost invisible. Uh, yeah. Uh, this danger of like constantly being watched. Mm-hmm. And when you tell those stories about Cyclone Nargis, which I was also there for, it, it reminds me of a comment that uh, a Burmese friend has told me about the current revolution in just noting that they have, uh, as a whole, the Burmese people have such low regard for their government and their authorities that they don't even really have a hope of being cared for by them or having any kind of welfare state or uh, any kind of uh, support. They just... They, they simply want them to not interfere with them being able to survive. And so that example of going to support the people impacted by Nargis and the Delta, that was, as you, as you mentioned, it was just Burmese people of all stripes from all directions, just getting in cars and boats and just trying to help out. And in many cases, the Burmese military stopped them. They, uh, they in some cases, they, uh, the best scenario, they probably just sent them back. In other cases, they stole the goods that they were trying to deliver as aid and donations. And in the worst of all cases, they might have arrested them or made them pay a bribe. And so um, even just in taking actions to help one another and be able to to improve their society on their own, I've had it explained to me, we just, we don't even have faith that, the, that we can have a government that can actually do good for us. We just want them to not stand in the way of us trying to take care of ourselves. And so mm-hmm. there really is that kind of supported community spirit. So getting back to the present moment and the alms bowl movement you're doing, it, um, it, uh, it occurs to me that you're in this kind of uncomfortable intersection of, um, that that's brought about by this movement you're, you're, you, you've launched. I wonder if you've felt um, the uh, reaction from any of these corners. So like on one hand, you're a monastic who is showing support and solidarity for, uh, for Burmese monks and Burmese people at this time. And you've already mentioned how you had some pushback from some of the more traditional elements of the Sangha and, and Western monastics, uh, people outside Myanmar that are saying this is... Uh, the, the the way that you're involved is perhaps not correct, but then within Myanmar itself, you know, monastics don't really have a great name right now for a couple of reasons. One is the prevalence of nationalist monks and and monks that have really been apologists and even blessed the the military and have not stood with the people and have really uh, gotten the attention not just of the Burmese people for their stance, but over the course of the last several years of the wider international community. And I, I, I would suggest even that the way for, for people that don't know much about Burmese Buddhism uh, and aren't so educated, that there's this kind of blanket suspicion that the entire Sangha is lean towards, leans towards nationalist and militaristic and anti-Islam. And so there's been these wider characterizations that the, the, the greater monkhood and, and, um, 
uh, and Sangha within Myanmar is uh, is nationalistic. Basically, that's that's one concern. Another one is that in among Generation Z and the uh, protest movement that's developed in Myanmar, there's been a kind of feeling that because the monks have played such a small role in this current movement, that they're kind of irrelevant. That it's um, they they don't they just simply don't have much bearing. They're kind of a relic of the past that is not so critical for this current moment the, the the current moment that we're in. And sometimes when I've had Burmese guests on the podcast and I've asked them about the role that monks or nuns could play, I often get a kind of silence uh, silence in the sense that they haven't really thought about it. They've they've started to see this segment of their society is so irrelevant um, because they haven't been involved that they're not even really thinking anymore about what relation they could have or what role they could play. And so it's interesting to me that you're taking this on and you are potentially getting it from all sides. You know, you're getting it from Western traditionalists who think that you're going too far. You're getting it from those in and out of the country that are seeing monastics as, uh, as being something of a nationalist stooge based on a few firebrands, unfortunate that, that they've gotten so much prominent attention. And then also just the growing irrelevance of the monkhood as seen by democracy advocates who, who don't see them as really joining them to the same extent that they they are so. I uh, so as you take this action, really charting a different course than the stigma of these three different uh, perspectives or prisms through which one might look at the sangha. Uh, I'm I'm curious, like what reaction you might have gotten, or where you see yourself in your movement, or the type of monastic community that you want to represent, where you see that fitting in with some of these uh, these other perspectives that one has started to see of monastics in Myanmar or monastics that are being engaged in social issues? Well, I think that this coup has been planned for some time and that there has probably also been some discussion about the, the Sangha as because the Sangha has always been very powerful and a very powerful force within Myanmar. And um, so that might, must have been some kind of worry, I would think. And you also see is that any monks who dared to stand up in whatever way uh, faced very, uh, yes, faced repercussions in, in, uh, in, in ways that, yeah, they, they disappeared, uh, were killed. We don't know what happened to them. Uh, that sends a very powerful message also to the other monastics and it's like, stay out of this or else. If you say anything at all, we will find you. And of course, that's that's very scary. Um, even just a simple action is like overturning the Elms Ball, which was still a possibility to do during the monks' uprising in 2007, was uh, an act for which you could get imprisoned or, or even killed. Um, so I, I suspect that that was one of the reasons why there is also a lot of silence and where why uh, maybe monastics then think like, oh, the only thing we can do is turn to the Dhamma, turn inside ourselves and just 
uh, work on this 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 meditation our, our practice and try in influence things in that way in some way of course there's also others that are very nationalistic and that are more on the forefront and might come more in the news as well that people hear about but i certainly refuse to believe that it's uh, the majority of the sangha mm. Mm -hmm, right. Thanks for that. Uh, and I also want to come back to what you referenced a couple times in this conversation where you've mentioned that you've actually been blacklisted to even return to Myanmar to practice. Uh, this is long before the coup happened. Can you describe the circumstances around that? Well, I, I, uh, um, I don't mean it's so literally as, as being blacklisted, I don't know about that. Maybe I could go back or maybe I can't. But as a, as a bikuni, uh there are no bikunis in, in Myanmar, uh, no fully ordained nuns, uh, according to um, their own laws of the Ministry of Religious Affairs. Bikunis don't exist. Uh, there have been bikunis in the past, Burmese bikunis, uh, who have gone to Sri Lanka to get ordination. Uh, only one of them, or maybe two that I know of, have returned. Uh, and the first one was immediately thrown in, in jail, have been uh, stripped of her robes, uh, have been tried to, they've tried to force her to say that she wasn't really a bikuni, etc. Uh, but eventually, and I think under international pressure, they released her and put her on an airplane to Sri Lanka. Uh, she uh, became a bikuni there again, uh, but uh, due to the PTSD uh, that that followed, she wasn't able to to retain that, and I think she has uh, asylum now in the USA. So that's the situation of bikunis in in uh, in Myanmar, and I think for foreign bikunis, it's sort of okay. They can't really do so much for you or against you, but uh, you won't be accepted as a bikuni. So. Um, yeah, that's a bit of the situation for its, uh, with bikunis in Myanmar. So uh, as that, I'm not accepted as a bikuni uh, to the Myanmar Sangha. Did you try to visit and you weren't able to? Or did, did you just realize that once you decided to become a bikuni that that wouldn't be possible? Uh, it would be more difficult. Um, I think there are some bikunis that do go back, do go to, um, uh, to Myanmar. Uh, uh, Mahayana bikunis, they usually don't have a, a problem because they're seen as Mahayana. Um, and other bikunis, I think that they just put on the robe of a sayale and just, uh, yeah, go to the country as a sayale. And they can also, uh, as long as they ca don't cause any, any problems and they can go to the other like now i've never tried to come back to myanmar afterwards my life just took a, a different different road <laughs> uh, mm. and uh, yeah for the as i ordained within a, a thai sangha there's also the thing of like not handling money and things like that which is sometimes a bit difficult i think in uh, in myanmar so you have to have some lay supporters who can uh, support you in that uh, and i haven't really tried to uh, organize that or look for that 
Right, right. And for those listeners that are new to this, this is a really complex issue and something that we do want to devote more shows to looking at uh, specifically because it is quite important. But just to give the basic definition for those that might be a little confused there, we're using these terms, bikuni on one hand and then on the other, tilashin or sele. Can you break down the difference in these terms? Yes, of course, yes. So when I first came to Burma, I was also ordained as a Tilaishin or uh, also called Sayale. Um, and that's basically on uh, what's called eight precepts. So you have eight rules to keep. Um, there's also uh, uh, another form of Tilaishin that have the keeps to 10 rules and there's two versions of that again. There's the, the papaja, which means the going forth, which means you don't handle money anymore. Or there is the, the meta rule, which is also used sometimes. Um, but those, yeah, this, this is a very long story, actually, but I, I'll try to summarize it. Um, at the time of the Buddha, the bhikkhunis were the women who ordained, and they were ordained in a, a way that was the same as, uh, as the monks, basically. Um, and that lasted for quite some time, for especially in, uh, in Sri Lanka. But uh, also in Sri Lanka, that uh, bhikkhuni order died out, and also the bhikkhu order, the monks order, died out there because of, of famine and wars, etc. And they re-imported the, the monks order back from Burma, but not the bhikkhuni order because it had never come to Burma in the first place. And so actually the bhikkhuni order died out for about a thousand years. And We've, it's only in the 90s that it started to be resurrected again by several uh, very um, brave women, especially in Sri Lanka, uh, but also uh, nuns like uh, Ayakema, etc., who were pioneers in that field. But so. What women did before that time, and also still doing, because the the, the bikuni order is still very much, uh, yeah, in its um, in its infancy, and so most of the nuns that you see uh, walking around uh, the in the white robe nuns in Thailand and the Dasasila da, da, sorry Dasasila Mata in in Sri Lanka and also the Sayalays and Tilashin in uh, in Myanmar. Uh, they are not considered as equal to the monks. They are um, basically, the, the women wanted to ordain, they wanted to uh, practice Buddhism as a monastic, but they were unable to because the bhikkhuni order had died out. And, or, and according to the Vinaya, to uh, re-establish the bhikkhuni order, you need five bhikkhunis. So that doesn't actually work if there's no more bikunis in the world. So um, the way it has been now re-established again is through the Mahayana nuns. And that is giving some problems because it is not recognized by a lot of traditional monks. But um, So the, the women actually they wanted something anyway. They wanted to uh, to ordain. They wanted to practice the teachings, and therefore they took up this sort of 
new form of uh, eight or ten precept nuns rather than fully ordained nuns. And that has been like that for hundreds of years. So that's what you see when you go to Thailand, to Burma, to Sri Lanka quite often. But uh, especially in Sri Lanka, the Bikuni order is taking off more and more and there is a couple of thousand Bikunis there now. So there it, it's it's really flourishing and it's also slowly spreading to other countries. There is some fully ordained uh, nuns in Thailand and uh, also in Western countries. Right. So this goes back to how many precepts the monastic is keeping. This is really what it's centered on. And um, full bhikkhus are keeping 227 rules. This is this was laid down by the Buddha, whereas um, the Thilishin Seyale, and we should mention Seyale literally means little teacher, can be translated as. Thilishin can be translated as like a master of virtue, master, master of Sheila, for those that know the word. So these are these are, are more diminutive than a, a, a full proper monastic. And the, the issue at its core is that uh, in a Buddhist society such as Myanmar, uh, you, you get greater merit by being able to support those that are either attained or practicing a nobler path if monks are supposedly following the 227 precepts, as we know, it's kind of counterintuitive because that's not exactly the case that those are all followed so strictly. But if the belief is that they are following the 227 precepts, thereby giving to and supporting a, a monk, a bhikkhu, is, is providing greater merit for the person giving. And because there is no nun order uh, that no... Um, uh, Bakuni order, we should say, Th because of that, there uh, the the nuns in Myanmar are only recognized at being able to follow ten precepts maximum, and thereby their their spiritual worth is is lower than the monks, and they operate this uh, this kind of um, this kind of ambiguous zone between being a lay person and a, a spiritual practitioner who's renounced somewhat and being not quite being a full monastic. And it, this is, as, as we've mentioned, this is a whole other conversation to get into the dynamics of this, of ex exactly where their ambiguity tends more towards the lay life and where their ambiguity tends more towards a kind of renunciates or spiritual life. But because they're not able, they're not recognized at being able to follow more precepts, they are not able to ascend to these spiritual heights and uh, be, spiritual authorities, one can also say, in Myanmar society, so they're not uh, honored or supported to the same extent as the monks. Uh, that's my general understanding, at least. Uh, would, you, uh, would you add anything to that? Uh, yes, absolutely, because this is a much wider issue. This is a worldwide issue of the Bikuni order and, and how uh, that fits in and what its history is than just the, just Myanmar. Um, the fact that Myanmar is still the most closed country to uh, where Bikunis are still uh, not even accepted um, as for instance, Sri Lanka is, is uh, big, although it's officially not recognized yet in Sri Lanka and neither is it in Thailand, the Bikunis are there and they are being supported by the, the people there. Uh, while in Burma, that's, it's simply not possible at all. Mm, that's interesting. So you think that the, 
the the life of a nun is perhaps more disadvantaged in Myanmar than other Buddhist countries. Is that fair to say? Um, it's definitely less equal. Hmm. Um, I, I, my own experience uh, as a, a, a Tilashin was that there was a lot of support, but uh, I don't think I can really speak from a very, uh, I was in a privileged position there. Uh, I was mm. in, uh, as a Westerner, first of all, I think you get more support from the, sure. than uh, Burmese women who want to become uh, Tila Shin. Uh, I was also in fairly rich monastery. So all these things play into it. So I, I can't really say how that situation is, but I have heard stories of uh, nunneries in Burma that with hardly any support and food. And mm. this was uh, not just recent, this is uh, an ongoing issue that has... Uh, and although you do see that same thing you see happening also in, in other countries, for instance, in the Tibetan traditions. But, um, yeah, I have the feeling that it's it's very difficult for for women in Myanmar to, to take that path. Mm, right. Well, certainly an important topic and one that this platform is going to continue to explore. We'll... we'll close off here for now in the space of, of this conversation. Uh, bringing, coming back to the start of the talk where we're going back to this movement, I want to go back to this kind of tension that exists between when when you are a monastic, that on one hand, by virtue of being a monastic, you have renounced certain parts of the world, certain attachments, certain concerns, uh, and have placed a spiritual path uh, on a higher plane than the, 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 the more worldly engagements. On the other hand, that's one part of the tension, the, the, that's the, the push of the push-pull. The other part of it is that there is, uh, there's also a, a commitment to, to that society and to those lay supporters. If, it, it, the Buddha was very clear in the rules he, play, he laid down that there was to be a reciprocal, ongoing lay monastic relationship. It would have been very easy to create a different set of rules where the monastics lived and functioned completely apart from lay society uh, and were left to their own devices, in which case it would be hard to imagine how the monastic community would have survived uh, one generation to the other. So by having that reciprocal relationship, that allowed the the lay and monastic communities to grow over the years as they've done for so many centuries and even millennium. But in the present day, the, there is that consideration. There is that, that question, that tension of where and how does one renounce and pull away and where does one have a greater social engagement and commitment and responsibility to that society. And what, as someone who's been a monastic for so many years, and I'm sure you've thought about this issue, and then with Myanmar, with the movement that you started with the overturned alms bowl, you thought about it even more because that was a way of social engagement. So how have you come to understand this dynamic for yourself? Well, first of all, if you're not really, um, like, on the one hand, you have to practice for yourself in order to see how this mind-body structure works and to be able to pass that knowledge on to other people. You can't go and teach 
if you don't know what you're talking about, basically. So you can only teach what you already know. So that's why it's also important to um, to find the truth within yourself. But also while doing so, you notice a greater compassion for other people. And I think this, uh, I think... Um, what's often disengaged Buddhism is called compassion in action. And that's basically what it is. You also feel this need to help other people out of suffering so they too can practice. And like if you see people starving, you're not going to start teaching them how to meditate. You feed them first. Uh, so I think it's really important to also help uh, other people and help our fellow uh, um, people in Myanmar because how can they sit quietly on a cushion and meditate and pretend about all these things are going on and that doesn't work you have to have some environment where it's safe where you can practice and so that's where compassion in action comes in I think it is very important to to help people to come to a place where they can practice the Buddha's teachings and make sure that those Buddha's teachings also live on. Well, with that, I thank you so much for joining us and taking the time to share your background, your relationship with Myanmar, as well as some of the support that you've harnessed with your fellow foreign monastics. And, uh, and just, just really great to get your voice on here. Thank you very much. And it was lovely to be here. And I wish you all the best with the enormously good work that you're doing. Namo dasa bhagavato arahato sama samudasa Namo dasa bhagavato arahato sama samudasa Sabe sata sabe bana sabe buddha sabe bhugala Sabe Atabava Pariyapanna. I know for a lot of podcast listeners, as soon as the fundraising requests start up, you kind of just zone out and skip ahead till it's over. But I ask that if you've taken the time to listen to our full podcast, that you also take the time to consider our spiel. Some may assume that producing a two-hour episode wouldn't take much more time than the conversation itself. But so much goes into it. In advance of the interview, our content team reviews the biography and relevant works of the upcoming guest, and we discuss the best way to use our limited time together. After the interview is complete, the raw audio file is sent to our sound engineer who shapes it into working order. A single episode can take several full days of solid production work in the studio, which is then carefully coordinated with our content team to ensure smooth listening. Further edits and post-production magic bring the eventual episode to your ears, along with extensive written descriptions of each interview, which we publish on our blog and on social media as well. Many of these steps require an outlay of funds in some way or another. We hope that each episode helps to inform you about the ongoing crisis. And if you find it of value, we also hope that you can consider supporting our mission. If you would like to join in our mission to support those in Myanmar who are being impacted by the military coup, we welcome your contribution in any form, currency, or transfer method. Your donation will go to support a wide range of humanitarian missions, aiding those local communities who need it most. Donations are directed to such causes as the Civil Disobedience Movement, CDM, Families of Deceased Victims, Internally Displaced Person, IDP Camps, 
food for impoverished communities, military defection campaigns, undercover journalists, monasteries and nunneries, education initiatives, the purchasing of protective equipment and medical supplies, COVID relief, and much more. We also make sure that our donation fund supports a diverse range of religious and ethnic groups across the country. We invite you to visit our website to learn more about past projects as well as upcoming needs. You can give a general donation or earmark your contribution for a specific activity or project you would like to support. Perhaps even something you heard about in this very episode. All of this humanitarian aid work is carried out by our nonprofit mission, Better Burma. Any donation you give on our Insight Myanmar website is directed towards this fund. Alternatively, you can also visit the Better Burma website, betterburma.org. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-B-U-R-M-A.org. And donate directly there. In either case, your donation goes to the same cause and both websites accept credit cards. You can also give via PayPal by going to paypal.me slash betterburma. Additionally, we take donations through Patreon, Venmo, GoFundMe, and Cash App. Simply search Better Burma on each platform and you'll find our account. You can also visit either the Insight Myanmar or Better Burma websites for specific links to those respective accounts or email us at info at betterburma.org. If you'd like to give in another way, please contact us. Thank you so much for your kind consideration and support. Utaraya nudisaya, dakinaya nudisaya, hetimaya disaya, uparimaya disaya. Hey, I, 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 I